Good morning. Man, um, I love this season. Um, my body doesn't love it because I always get sick this time of year. Um, but I love this season and um, really excited for this upcoming week, uh, Christmas Eve. We've just seen tremendous response to the, the word we have out about the service, both uh, banners and those cards and on Facebook. And so we're really excited for uh, Christmas Eve. And then Christmas Day will be a different service. We're going to have a, a bunch of readers. We're going to do a service called Lessons and Carols that will really just help us kind of lean into the season. And uh, if you want to come in your pajamas, as long as they're appropriate, knock yourself out. I'll not be preaching in pajamas, but, you know, uh, you're not going to get dress coded at the door or anything. Um, but we're really excited for this season. And one of the difficulties about this season that all of us are aware of is just the consumerism. You know, uh, I read it recently, and this was a dated statistic, so it's probably more than this. But on a daily basis, we're inundated with at least 3,000 commercial ads every day. At least 3,000 ads. And one of the results of that is that even as young children, we become aware of brands, companies, and messages, even, even just by looking at a picture. All of a sudden, something comes to mind. We have a reaction within us. We feel like we need to buy something or do something. And I wanted to kind of illustrate that. And so I'm going to show you in a second some logos. And I want you to call out the name of the company that logo is associated with, okay? I'm gonna, I, I didn't give you guys really hard ones because I didn't want to stump you. So we'll start out pretty easy with the first one. McDonald's, okay. Starbucks. Yeah, there we go. And that one's pretty easy. I mean, it's, I mean it's, it looks like an apple. I mean, so let's keep going. Last one, Nike, okay. So with all of those, you start thinking about things. You start smelling fries. You start thinking about how you're tired and you need a coffee. Are my shoes really good enough? You know, you start thinking about those things. It's also true that we see pictures and symbols in our culture and we know what to do as a result. So for these, I want you to call out what you're supposed to do when you see this, okay? So first one. There we go. Okay. Recycle. Okay. And then the last one. Okay, this is the one that everybody really struggled with. Unless you're under 18 and then you're just like, hit the button, Scott. Play, you know. Um, so those are symbols. We also have these in our faith. And so when you walked in, you got a bulletin. At the top of your bulletin, there's a series of two blanks. And they're numbered one, two, and three. And so I'm going to show you three symbols of our faith. And for each one, I want you to write down the first two words that come to mind. The first two words that come to mind when you see these symbols, uh, if you didn't, if you have a pen, you got one, you walked in, write it down. If not, um, write these down. You're not saying these, you're just writing these down. Here's the first symbol. So write down the two words that come to mind when you see this symbol and not Lord's Supper for those of you who are sarcastic. Um, First two words that come to mind when you see this symbol. Okay, and here's the second symbol. What are the two words that come to mind when you see this symbol? Gut reaction, don't overthink it. It's not a test. And then third symbol. First two words that come to mind. Okay, I want you to overthink it, so we'll we'll move on. But it's that third symbol, this manger, that I want to dig into today. Because I think I have this hunch that we struggle to see the manger the way that they did 2,000 years ago when they laid Jesus in it. 
And so I want us to lean into the manger and say, hey, maybe we've missed something. Because this is not how it looked back then. I, I know this is cute on your mantle, so I'm not saying throw it away. I grew up with one of these, um, but, but this is not how it looked. And so because this is not how it looked, and yet this is what we're most familiar with, I think we have to do some work to connect with the manger and that scene that Jesus was born into. And so this morning, my big idea is this. If we follow Jesus, we each have a manger and a cross. If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to seek to, to be followers of him, to be little Christ, literally what Christian means, if we're going to seek to follow in his way, then we each have a manger and a cross. And this morning, we're going to locate ourselves in a text in Luke 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So if you have a Bible, open to Luke 2. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Luke is uh, one of the th- four accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus. Luke was not there. He wasn't an eyewitness. He was a doctor who did a detailed research project and took the eyewitness accounts from people who were there, and then he wrote his account that we call the Gospel of Luke. And Luke 2, 1 through 7 is probably the most famous traditional Christmas story, and uh, we're going to read it together. So if you would, would you stand with me? You can follow along in your Bible or on the screen. We're going to read this together, and then we'll dive in and see what it has for us. Luke 2, 1 through 7. Luke writes, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, he was the emperor of Rome, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his hometown. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and line of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. God, I pray that you would speak to us powerfully this day, that you would show us what it is you want us to hear. And for those of us who've heard these words from Luke 2 hundreds of times, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to hear something fresh and new today. In your name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So from this story and from the example of the manger, I think that there are three things that we can learn today about following Jesus. And the first one is this. The first one is that the manger shows us Jesus' approach to power. We learn about how Jesus sees power and approaches power through the manger. Now, this is just a little bit of an insight into how I think, but when I started thinking about this passage, I realized there's a lot of places and times and people that Jesus could have been born into. Like, look at this. He could have been born the son of a Kardashian. I mean, wouldn't that have been a different story, you know? Jesus West. I don't even want to go there. It's going to ruin my whole day, you know? But Jesus could have been born the son of the Pharaoh, who was the most powerful man on earth. He could have been born the son of Caesar, who had worldwide influence. He could have been born at a time where he had access to technology to get his word out to the whole world instantly. He could have been born to someone who was famous, who who some people admire. But instead, he was not born to those people. He was not born in those places. And he was not born at this time. And I think that we should reflect on that and go, what does that mean? 
I think what that means is that Jesus, even though he was a king, he was not the kind of king that we think of. And he didn't approach the power that comes along with being king, let's go to the next slide, the same way that we do. For the most part, Jesus ignored the institutions of power in his day, the church power and the political power, and he instead looked to people to change the world. Even when he said his church would not be overcome by the gates of hell, he used the word ecclesia, which means a gathering of people, not a building, not an institution. Jesus believed a lot differently than we do about power. So the question I have for you today is, do you believe that you have power today? Sitting where you are in your life, do you believe that you have power? Many of us would say, no, I don't believe I have power because I'm not where I thought I was going to be. I'm not doing what I thought I was going to be doing. My life has not gone the way I thought it was going to go. And each year when we come to Christmas, we have this reminder in the manger that Jesus does not look at life the way that we do. Because if we were going to change the world and we were going to send one person to do it, this is not where we would have started. We would not have started with the manger. We would not have sent the Son of God to this place. And if you do think that, that's because you're still in precious moments, manger land. The, the manger is not precious moments. It's actually more like this. This is our modern manger. A dirty, slobbery, disgusting food bowl. Most of you, if you have a pet, would not ever put your child in your dog's food bowl. Just hazarding a guess. I don't know. I'm a parent. Maybe you would, you know, no shame. Whatever you're going to do. Um, no judgment. I'm just thinking you're probably not going to do that. And this, this is this. This is not the manger. This is a food trough that animals would eat food out of with their germs and their slobber. And it was dirty. And it was all they had. And that's where Jesus was born. And so if that's where he was born, then he must approach power differently than we do. He must think about life differently than we do. The thing is, though, that common food bowl that night was transformed permanently from that to this. The manger that night was overflowing with the glory of God. And we're not told how long Jesus was, how heavy he was at birth. They didn't have those technologies back then. But we do know that the manger was overflowing that night. It was overflowing with the glory of God. And for 2,000 years, we still can't think about this the way that they did because all we can see is Jesus. And he transforms the way we look at things, especially power. The second thing the manger indicates to us is it indicates the humility of Jesus. The manger indicates Jesus' humility. Many times people tell a story about their own life. They'll say, hey, I came from humble beginnings. I had a humble start. I didn't come from a whole lot. My parents didn't have a whole lot. Maybe we were poor. We didn't have a whole lot of uh, extravagant luxuries. Well, if anybody could say he came from humble beginnings, it was Jesus. He was born in, in this stable. It's not even enough to call it a barn. It was a stable. He and his family were basically in the same spot as homeless people. 
kind of pushed off in a corner, no one to see. A few years ago, my friend Julie drew a picture, and it, it, for me, has been a way to reconnect with the humility and discomfort of the birth of Jesus in a modern way. This is what she drew. Jesus born, not in a stable, but in an alleyway, to teenage parents, put in a cardboard box. And it's a reminder that Jesus did not come into this world with pomp and circumstance. He didn't come into this world with the signs or the attachments or the accoutrements that he could have deserved. Instead, he was born into humility. And for someone who had every reason to not be born into humble circumstances, he was. And it was just the beginning of the humility that was going to mark his life. After he washed his disciples' feet, He said these words in John 13, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is saying to us, his disciples, he's saying, hey, I didn't come to be served. And so if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to embrace a path of humility too. So my question for you in this section is, how are you doing with humility today? Maybe it's a better question to ask the person next to you how you're doing with humility, but it might be more uncomfortable. You might not like what they have to say. Humility comes from the Latin word that means low. And so a humility at its core is a sober-minded judgment of yourself. A sober-minded view of yourself. You know people who are not humble? What do you say? They're drunk on themselves. But humility is a sober-minded view of yourself. Some of us struggle with humility because we look in the mirror and we see ourselves as more than we are. You don't see yourself in tights and you look at the mirror? Okay, never mind. But some of us do. Um, Some of us see ourselves as more than we are. And even at a young age, we struggle to decipher. Let's go to the next slide who we actually are, more of ourself or less of ourselves. In Romans 12, 3, Paul says these words. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. So whether you think more of yourself and that's a struggle, or you think less of yourself and that's your struggle, Jesus and the manger are this calling to think of ourselves as we actually are. And that's not easy. Even for me, I struggle with this. And, And one of the places that I struggle with it is where I actually am right now. This place is a struggle for me. Because my greatest fear as a writer and as a pastor and a speaker is insignificance. Does anybody care? I put all these, this work into these words, but do they matter? Does, does anybody listen? Did, did any of that amount to anything or was it pointless? That's the fear. The temptation is the other side. It's the ego. Because we all know people who've stood on stages who decide they like the lights. And the lights inflate their ego. And they believe that they are more than they actually are. They make things about them. They put their identity in what people say about them. They let success go to their head and ultimately failure go to their heart. And that's the place where I struggle and have struggled is between insignificance and ego. 
And the manger calls to me, just me specifically, I'm just saying me, it calls me to locate my identity, not in my reaction and not in my performance, but in who God says I am. And every time I look at the manger, it's a reminder, am I seeing myself with sober-minded judgment? Am I locating my identity in who God says I am or in who I feel I am or in who others say I am? See, for us, the manger indicates that Jesus was humble and that humility started in the manger and it ended on the cross. Which takes us to our third observation, that the manger hints at Jesus' destiny. The manger hints at Jesus' destiny. And that's why I think we, we sell the manger short as this kind of off-mentioned thing, like, and they put him in a manger, it kind of moves on. When instead, the manger is a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, tap you on the shoulder, hey, guess what, here's what's coming. On your card that you got last week that we handed you with your scripture references, we put a crown of thorns in the manger as a reminder to you that this is not the end, it's only the beginning. This morning, you have another card in your bulletin. It's got scriptures for you to read this week, and it'll lead us up till next Sunday. So please take it home and read those, and we'll be talking about this next weekend on Saturday and on Sunday. But but this story of what starts in a manger is ultimately completed on a cross, and it's this reminder that the destiny of Jesus and the way he works is often very different than how we work. And a great illustration of this is told in the story known as the tale of three trees. Anybody ever seen this story before? One of my favorite Christmas stories. I'll try to summarize it for you. And if I get it wrong, please don't harass me because the details were off. Um, But the tale of three trees is about these three trees that grow up and they're given personalities. So it's a fictionalized story. And each of them has ambitions and desires. The first one wants to be um, used as the great, um, like a bed or a home for a king. The next one wants to be a boat, a magnificent, almost yacht, ancient yacht for for a great man. And then then the last one wants to be a throne. The first one gets cut down and it's made into a simple feeding trough. And it feels like its dream has been missed out until the day where Jesus is placed in it. Second tree gets cut down. It's made into a common fishing boat put on a lake in the backside of nowhere for fishermen to use. Until one day when a man walks across the water and steps into the boat and it holds the king of kings. The third one thinks it's going to be the the throne and instead it's thrown on a trash heap and only later made into a cross on which hangs the king of kings. And it's, it's a little bit cliche, but for me it's a powerful story that often what we think is going to happen looks very different from what God does. And the gap between those two is often the place where a lot of us struggle. And I think the reason why is that many of us miss the reality that suffering and service are the destiny of those who follow Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to experience suffering and service and struggle. No one clapped for that. I'm not really sure why. And and the truth is, many of us have never heard this, or we don't hear this until we're down the way following Jesus a while. 
This truth is often the fine print, you know, at the bottom. Like if you use an iPhone or iTunes and they put an update out, and it's, you just scroll, 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 hit agree so I can move on. And many of us miss this. But Jesus says to us, look, no servant is greater than his master. So if Jesus was born into suffering, if he struggled and served others all the way from the manger to the cross, then when we experience struggle, it shouldn't rock our worlds. It should be a reminder that you are going the direction that Jesus has called you because he experienced that too. We often hear about love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and all of those things are true. Jesus did say, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. He promised us that here and eternally. But I think he's also saying to us, don't be surprised if in this world you have trouble. I had it too. And he promises us that he'll never leave us or forsake us. And he promises us that he has overcome the world. He said to his disciples in John 13, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And no messenger is greater than the one who sent him. Later on, he told his disciples, whoever be great among you must be your servant. Whoever be first of all must be the slave. For even the son of man came not to serve, but to give his life as a ransom for many. So the card last week asked you, where have you pursued your own interests and avoided serving others? Where have you looked to be served instead of serving others? Let me put it another way. Where is your manger and what is your cross? Where is your manger and what is your cross? Where is the place where God's plans are not following your timeline? And they look uncomfortable. Where is the place where God is calling you to set aside your agenda, to die to yourself, and to live for him? Somebody asked me this week, Scott, why would I embrace a manger? Why would I embrace a cross? What's the point? This is kind of a difficult message, Scott. What, what's the purpose? Well, I think that many of us at our core long to experience the presence of God. And when we don't experience God's presence, it, it drives us into a dark place. And sometimes we think that we're only going to experience the presence of God in good, in plenty, in blessing, and in comfort. But many of us have discovered this, that in our darkest moments, when we are furthest from where we thought we were going, and when we're in the most struggle, we experience God's presence most powerfully. On our worst day, not our best day. Because we didn't need God over here. We could do this on our own. But when we're right here, God better show up because we're not going to make it. And so many times what we want the most comes amidst what we would have never asked for or never planned. And sometimes you can be closest to God in the manger and on the cross, not on top of the world with every bonus. And if Jesus is the model for us, how much more should we be grateful that we get to go the path that he did? I want to tell you a story as I close today. My mom went to high school in the 70s. And uh, she was in the lunchroom one day working on a paper before there were word processors and computers. And she needed a title for her paper. 
And her friend looked at her and he said, are there any drums in your paper? She said, no. Are there any trumpets in your paper? She said, no. Well, then title your paper, no drums, no trumpets. And she goes, why? She goes, what does it mean? He goes, I don't know. But your teacher will probably read some really deep meaning into it that you've written in your paper and think you're really creative and give you an A. So you know what she did? She wrote the paper, put no drums or trumpets on it. Three days later, got it back. And what did she get? She got an A. So she told me this story when I was in middle school. And I was spunky enough that I decided to try it. So my first semester, my junior year, I wrote a paper. can't remember what class it was for. Titled it, No Drums, No Trumpets. And guess what I got? I got an A. And I was so spunky that from that moment on until I graduated graduate school, three degrees later, every semester I wrote a paper for a different teacher titled No Drums, No Trumpets, and I got A's on all of them. (laughs) All of them. And if I ever write a book, I'm going to title it No Drums, No Trumpets. And I titled this sermon No Drums, No Trumpets because that's how we're called to live. There's no drums and no trumpets here. There's no fanfare. There's no attention. There's no bright lights. Jesus could have been born anywhere, and he was born in a manger. He could have changed our destiny anyway, but he did it on a cross. And if we're going to be little Christs, that's what Christian means. If you say you're a Christian, you're saying you are a little Christ. You're trying to look like Jesus. Then your life is going to be a no-drums no trumpets life. It's not going to be about you. At times, it's going to be uncomfortable. At times, it's going to feel like death. But he promises that this is how he changes the world. He wants to use you. He'll never leave you. And he's going to do things through you you could have never imagined. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much that you came at Christmas. We would have never scripted it this way. A manger, Bethlehem, stable, Mary and Joseph. But we know that what you did has changed the world. And for many of us, it's still changing our lives. And so God, we come today confessing that sometimes we fight you. We push against what you're doing. For many of us, this has been a difficult year. For many of us, this is a difficult season with more struggle than celebration. And so we pray that in the same way you met Mary and Joseph and those shepherds and those wise men, your presence showed up in a palpable way we pray you might meet us here. God, we confess that we struggle with this, with this humility and serving and suffering. We confess that that it's hard not to make it about us. We confess that we've pushed back against you when you've not done things our way. But God, we thank you so much for grace and mercy and forgiveness and second chances. 
We thank you that you're patient with us. And we pray that this year we might see with fresh eyes, we might hear with fresh ears. We pray our hearts might be open to what you're doing. And we pray that you might use us where we are, doing what we're doing, even if this is not where we planned, but with your presence. In the same way that you came near to those simple people 2,000 years ago, we pray you'd come near to us this Christmas and not leave us the same. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.